0: So we'll have uh, Dr. Steve Bartels come up. Uh, He's the director for the Centers for Health and Aging at Dartmouth, which um, is the program that houses the GEC, among other um, aging programs.
1: Great. Well, um, glad to see all of you here for this uh, really terrific uh, series that you're participating in today. Uh, And uh, hopefully it's been useful to you this morning and and that you'll also – as we move into the afternoon program, uh, learn some new things that will be helpful to you in providing services to uh, older adults in the community. So um, it's really my pleasure and privilege to introduce uh, a long-standing uh, friend, standing friend who uh, is uh, really the nation's expert in older adults and substance use disorders. He's done more in this area than anybody I know and is uh, regularly called upon uh, for the by the federal government and many, many people to advise on policy and treatment and a host of things having to do with older adults and substance abuse uh, and substance use disorders. Uh, Dr. Blow is the professor and director of the substance abuse section at the University of Michigan Addiction Research Center in the Mental Health Services Outcomes and Translational Section of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Michigan, and he has, wears many, many hats. Um, he's uh, the uh, first uh, national Huss-Hazelton Endowed Research Chair on Substance Abuse in Older Adults. Um, he's a national expert, as I mentioned, uh, in this area. Uh, he's done work in domestic violence, alcohol screening, diagnosis for older adults and mental disorders, co-occurring mental health and, and, phys- and uh, substance use disorders in older adults, uh, risks of suicide in older adults, Mental health services research. He also has had a very prominent role in the Veterans Administration system across the country, uh, writing many, many articles on, on health care and mental health care uh, for our veterans. Um, his current research spans. That's interesting. Wow. So apparently he's such an important. Uh, person he literally blows up the speaker here <laughs> um, but he um, he really has uh, again uh, led uh, so much of the work that we now refer to and has published over 300 articles in the area and, and uh, today is going to be talking to you about uh, about how to think about screening and delivering practical brief interventions in the community so even though he's worked in many many different spheres he also uh, has spent a lot of time with community-based providers helping them to think about what the tools are that they need to make a difference within the flow of care and within what you're doing regularly every day and the the services you provide to older adults. So it's really my uh, pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Fred Blow from the University of Michigan.
0: Thank you, Steve. So welcome everyone. I'm glad uh, to be here today. Uh, I always like coming to New Hampshire. I'm actually from Maine. Uh, southern Maine, Saco, and I spent the weekend with my parents there, so I am uh, uh, someone that knows the, the state pretty well. I spent many great summers in Ashland, at Squam Lake, so I feel very much like this is a, a bit of a homecoming every time I come to New Hampshire, uh, even though I normally don't come through Manchester, I go to Portland, but I'm really happy to be here today. Um, We're going to cover a fair amount of ground. This morning you had a really good training program around motivational interviewing. And what I want to do this afternoon is to give you more uh, background, some more information about why should you care about this topic around substance abuse, misuse in older people, focusing not only on alcohol but other drugs, particular prescription drugs. We'll talk about that. We'll we'll spend about uh, maybe a quarter of the time going through these slides pretty quickly. That's why you have copies of them. You can refer back to them. You can use them. Uh, and then we're going to get into the next portion of the presentation, which is what, is, what is this about this brief intervention? How does it interface with motivational, uh, interv- motivational interviewing? And really, the difference between what you learned this morning in terms of the techniques around motivational interviewing and what we do, which is a motivational enhancement, that really is me. Don't do that. We will uh, see if I can get this in a different spot to see if I can maybe here will work better. I have no. It's in, oh yes, here. All right, we'll, all right. Maybe everyone now is, uh, okay. (laughs) We'll see if that works. Uh, Gremlins come into all kinds of equipment for me. I gotta tell you, the number of times things have gone wrong in in presentations, you just never know. Uh, So what is this about motivational enhancement? And I'm gonna do some training. We'll do a little bit of experiential learning for that. Uh, You know, what do we use, why do we use a workbook, and how do we uh, think about using that workbook? Um, It's a lot of fun, it's interesting, it's not a hard thing to do. I've literally trained thousands of providers over the years. We did the original trials, randomized trials of these interventions. We know they work. We know they can be delivered in a whole lot of settings, and I hope you'll be able to uh, use what you learn today tomorrow. Uh, These are uh, interventions that are really aimed at very rapid uptake and easy delivery. So we'll talk about that. At the end of today, the last half hour, I want to spend some time about how would you implement routine, systematic, universal screening in your settings? How do you think about screening? How would you implement alcohol brief interventions in your settings? So I want to, I want to ask and troubleshoot with you about how might this work actually in practice? And then finally, What about sustaining these? So one of the big problems with these interventions is that we've shown they're very effective in reducing alcohol consumption, improving health and well-being for older people, but we know there's all kinds of barriers for actually getting them to, to work in practice because people don't follow through over time with continuing to do these, even though they are pretty straightforward and we know that they work. So we're gonna spend some time about, think about what, what kinds of questions would you have around how might these work? So that's kind of today's topic list and uh, we'll zip through a number of things. In your packet there's a variety of resources for you. There is the brief intervention booklet which we'll go through in some detail which is the health promotion booklet. It has the leaves on the cover. You can copy these, you can, they're, they're copyrighted but they're really aimed at you guys using them You can modify them to really fit into your setting, Uh, we'll talk about that. We also have all the slides. You have two issue briefs that cover the topic area of today's topic that were uh, relatively recent developed by SAMHSA, both Steve and I had a lot of active involvement in developing these and uh, putting them into um, print, so those are available to you. Uh, and then there's also a number of other resources in your packet. There's the screening instruments, which we'll talk about today. Uh, and I think that's probably it. Yes, I think that's it. Okay. Yes, yeah, screening instruments, the workbook, slides, and then the two uh, issue briefs. So, any questions about where we're headed today? What we're going to cover? Now, I like to walk around a fair amount because you guys at the back seem like you're really far away, almost in another country. So I'll come back and talk with you guys and and be up here. So I'm going to try to make this really interesting. It'll be a much more interesting session for you and for me if you ask questions, if you bring up anything that's burning in your head about, well, that doesn't make sense to me. You know, We can make this very interactive. I will move pretty quickly because I want to cover this kind of baseline information. Uh, and get right into the brief intervention session. But if we could stop me at any time, just raise your hand. If you can't hear me, if it doesn't make sense, anything is a reasonable thing to ask. So please feel free to do that. And I know this is the hardest point of the day, right after lunch. So <laughs> it's hard for you, but it's also hard for me. So <laughs> let's uh, try to make it kind of fun and interesting. Okay, so disclosures. I have a variety of grants that are active. I don't take industry-sponsored uh, money, so I have no other uh, uh, conflicts of interest uh, of things I'm going to be talking about today. Okay, So what do we know about older adults and alcohol use, and why should you care? Well, there's some basic physiological things that happen in aging, that happens as part of what we have as part of our aging process. And these changes start with people in their 50s. They're not things that all of a sudden happen when you're 90, but rather they're gradual physiological changes, which includes a decrease in overall percentage of body water in your system and an increase in the percentage of body fat. And what that means is that higher blood level water soluble alcohol and drugs. So because you have less body water to, dis- to dilute the alcohol, you have higher levels of alcohol with any given dose of alcohol, okay? So smaller amounts have bigger impact. We also know that fat soluble drugs stay around longer. So it's basic physiology. This happens to us all. So what happens as people get older is that they're more vulnerable to the effects of certain uh, drugs, and they're more vulnerable to the effects of alcohol basic physiology. And so if you continue to drink what you've been drinking all your life, the one beer a day you have, or the two drinks drinks of alcohol, two um, glasses of wine that you've been doing for most of your adult life, all of a sudden in your 60s, that's going to have a lot more impact on you. And if you overlay that with Medications, with chronic illnesses, with other age related changes, it means you're going to be much more vulnerable to the effects of alcohol and drugs. And so the absorption also changes and may decrease as you get older and slow with slower uh, stomach emptying and you get slower metabolism and elimination. And so you can have delayed drug actions, and we also know that these drugs and alcohol stay around in the body longer. They metabolize more slowly. And so again, when you take a drink of alcohol in later life, you're going to have more bang with that smaller amount. The alcohol is gonna stay around a lot longer, so the negative consequences of even moderate consumption are much higher for older people. Hence, we're gonna be focusing on trying to reduce people's levels of consumption to safer levels to accommodate for these normal age-related changes that everyone experiences as they get older. So, a little bit about uh, drinking definitions because it's hard to just talk generally about uh, drinking in later life. And these are the World Health Organization drinking definitions of harmful drinking. Typically, you know, you think about the really heavy drinkers. Sometimes we've been apt to call them alcoholics or problem drinkers. Some people call them drunks. They're not kind of pejorative uh, terms. But if you think about the really heavy drinkers, the people that have the most serious drinking, these are the harmful drinkers. These are the people that might meet criteria for abuse dependence. They may need treatment. Many have had a lot of treatment over their lifespan, and they have a lot of complications related to their alcohol consumption. The next category there is hazardous drinking. Sometimes I like to talk about it as at-risk drinking. It's drinking that places your health at risk. It's hazardous because it's over-recommended limits, and it puts your uh, whole... uh, well-being at risk. It's sometimes called unhealthy drinking. So, at risk, hazardous, or unhealthy drinking. And then there's the non-hazardous drinking. These are this is the drinking that, without any clear risk of complications, and it, it includes the beneficial uh, use of alcohol. We'll talk about that in a minute. And uh, sometimes people have called this social drinking. I don't like that term because it really kind of has a a, uh, again, a, a value-laden connotation. So we kind of get rid of the value terms, the things that we'll re- have people will react to. That is problem use, or alcoholism, or alcohol dependence, or uh, social drinking. We take those terms out, and we give them pretty much non-value-driven terms. And it's much easier then to talk about these things with clients, with patients, as we go forward. And hence, we want to try and target different levels of consumption for different interventions. Make sense to everyone? OK. So what's the harm in a few drinks? right? Have any of you heard about the beneficial effects of alcohol? Yeah? What, what have you heard? Wine is good for you. That red wine in particular may be good. Anything else? Vodka has a ton of uses. Vodka has a ton of uses. (laughs) There you go. For for vodka, but probably not necessarily around health. (laughs) Maybe around window cleaning or or uh, you know uh, pasta sauce, something like that, right? Uh, uh, I've never heard that actually. It's very funny. Yeah. Okay, a little shot of brandy in the day is good for circulations. So, so, um, so what's what's the reality? What's what's the evidence? Well, there's a lot of data that suggests that actually moderate drinking is beneficial, is beneficial for preventing heart disease, potentially for preventing neurocognitive problems. So, a certain kind of dementia. There's some evidence that moderate alcohol consumption is beneficial. And it's important to note that low, moderate levels of consumption are the most beneficial. We're gonna define that in a minute. And that the other part of this is that we know that alcohol is a social lubricant, right? It's, it's part of what can be part of a, a, a context of having a drink with people and socializing. And we want to promote that in later life. So, you know, there's some benefits, definitely, to the drinking. Now, there have been something on the order of 300 studies that have shown that moderate alcohol consumption in the form of one drink a day, largely related to red wine consumption, grape grape juice is not as effective. There is something about the combination of the ethanol, the alcohol, as well as the antioxidants in red wine, whereas veritol is one of the big areas that have been a lot of studies done. You can buy tablets. Now, no evidence of those work in health food stores. There's something about the beverage that actually does prevent heart disease, potentially prevents certain neurocognitive things. So it's one drink a day. It's red wine. It's not so much related to white wine or beer, though there's some evidence for both, and not at all related to distilled spirits. So whiskey, brandy, no evidence that it's going to improve your health. In fact, the evidence is that it's likely to not improve your health to make it worse. Yeah? I know this is about alcoholism, but
2: if you have an alcoholic patient who has never drunk but wants to maintain clarity and physical health and
0: vibe in later life, and they say to you, should I start drinking red wine a day? What's the answer? It's an excellent question. So I've never drunk or I've had very little drinking in my life, and now I'm in later life, and maybe I should start because of all this evidence. There's no evidence that starting later in life to drink is going to have any benefit. And in fact, the negative consequences are higher than the benefit. You have to weigh the positives and the negatives. So it's a great question. Uh, People, you know, my my, um, uh, mother-in-law, when my father-in-law was having some behavioral problems, decided that she would actually give him wine at lunch. A glass or two of wine, to help with to help with uh, managing him, and he seemed to calm down after this. So we went to visit. We went to visit, and there was this bottle of wine, a you know, large jug on the on the counter. I said, "What is that?" And she tells this story, and I said, "That's going to make things much worse. There's no evidence it's going to make it any better?" But you know, it's that notion that you know if if uh, There is some evidence for the positive health benefits. Maybe you could could start it later in life, and that would be better. He was a low drinker all his life, and all of a sudden she thought that would be a good idea. Not a good idea. So,
2: again, the next question
3: is at what age would
0: one have to start? So at what age would one have to start to reap the benefits? You know, we can't randomize people to drinkers and non-drinkers in their teens, right? We can't say, you're going to be a drinker and you're not. We just can't do that. So we can't answer that specific question because we don't know when. Uh, But clearly, the the data are for lifelong drinkers who are, you know because the development of of heart disease isn't until later in life. So in order to tell whether or not the alcohol is having an effect, it's just associational. You have to kind of look at it over longer periods of time. Anyway, so the the bottom line is that there's probably some benefit here. There's a number of of, uh, methodological problems because you can't randomize people, but nonetheless, there's good evidence that this is an effect that's important. Yet, we also know that there are a number, we've already talked a little bit about this, uh, age-related changes that place older adults at higher risk for adverse consequences for their drinking, even low, low levels of drinking. For example, For any dose of alcohol, after adjusting for body size, body weight, any dose, an older person is going to have a higher blood alcohol concentration than a younger person for that one dose. Because they they absorb it more quickly, they metabolize it more slowly, it stays around longer. There's more impairment at any given blood alcohol concentration. you know, a younger person can drink uh, a couple of drinks and, uh, you know, be in, feel pretty good but not necessarily being impaired at all. An older person may have a lot of problems with just one drink. May have problems with gait, may have problems with uh, balance, may have problems with just being able to function. So just a very small amount of alcohol has a bigger effect. And then finally, these interactive effects of alcohol, chronic illness and medications is a really important constellation that's very common later life. So what are the implications for older drinkers? Well, first of all, moderate levels can be risky. These are take-home points. Moderate levels can be risky. So you have to change the way you think about alcohol consumption from what is what you may be thinking with younger people to really reduce it for older people. The second thing is that you have more consequences for maintaining consumption. So those two drinks that continue into later life can be really big problems. So we've had clients that come in and say, you know, I always drink two martinis before dinner. Well, first of all. Two martinis are really a lot of alcohol, equivalent to four drinks, because each martini essentially is equivalent to two drinks. It's very heavy consumption. That can be very risky. I always have a couple glasses of wine with dinner. That can be really risky. Any increase in consumption can rapidly uh, uh, result in consequences. It's what we talk about as a telescoping of symptom. People rapidly develop from having no problems to having significant problems by just increasing their alcohol consumption from one drink a day to two drinks a day. That switch can be a real problem. So when your clients come in and say, you know, there's this new study I heard about on the television today, and they're saying that alcohol is good for you. And you know, I drink a glass of wine every day. But if a glass of wine is good, two glasses would be better right? If, if one is good, two is better. It's our thinking. Two is good, four is better. So increased consumption can really rapidly increase in, result, uh, in um, consequences. So what are the recommended drinking limits for older people? And I wanted to tell you that they're half that for younger people. Literally half. And those are that an older person should drink no more than one drink per day on average for men, one drink a day per on average for men, and less than that for women. We don't know the exact amount, but women have special vulnerabilities in younger life as well as older life. They are very different in terms of alcohol consum- and alcohol metabolism, and so women should be drinking less. And then on any drinking day, Four or more drinks on a drinking day is defined as a binge episode. Four or more drinks for a man, and three or more for a woman. These compare to, the for younger people, the recommended drinking limits for men is two drinks a day. That's the limit. And for for younger women, one drink per day. And binge episode drinking is defined as Five or more drinks on a drinking day for young men and four or more drinks on a drinking day for young women. So that's kind of how it compares. So the deal is you can't save up your drinks for the weekend. (laughs) All right? Sorry, but that's a really dangerous pattern of consumption. So you can't if you drink, if you're drinking five drinks on a weekend day. That's really very dangerous. Binge drinking pattern is a really um, uh, uh, challenging pattern because it ha- increases risk for all kinds of things, including injuries, medication interactions, etc. cetera. So you really want to try to get people to have a, a lower level of risk by reducing their consumption. People should never drink when? Sorry? If they have some memory problems, not drinking may actually be better for them because that the drinking may cloud what's going on with their memory problems. Any other reasons people should never drink? Mental health. You know, mental health is a little complicated, but generally, if you're trying to treat someone with depression, uh, people that continue to drink while you're also trying to manage their depression adds a lot of complexity to managing the pre- their depression. There's an important study that was published a few years ago where they followed people that were newly diagnosed with depression out to six months. They treated everyone with antidepressants and psychotherapy. The group of people that continued to drink into the six-month outcomes had worse depression outcomes than those who stopped drinking at six months. Now, it's associational, but it's an interesting idea that you know the drinking actually clouds what's happening around the depression. So maybe we should recommend that people reduce their consumption or stop drinking if they've got uh, a depression. Any other people that shouldn't drink at all? Anyone who's driving. Anyone who's driving. Um, in the European countries, most of them now, there's a zero tolerance for any alcohol on board For driving, so you can get an infraction at .02, one drink, zero tolerance. We don't have that. We have per se laws in the United States that are .08, which is the equivalent of about two two to three drinks over a short period of time for an older person. Um, So one could argue about that, whether it's, but it certainly increases risk if you're driving or if you're doing operating machinery or doing other things. So you want to try and limit that. Anyone else that shouldn't drink at all? Yeah, way back. So those that have been in combat or injured, have PTSD or, or TBI, probably should reduce their consumption or not, not drink much. So the, the more general case is people with certain chronic illnesses, people with things that are going on for them may actually decrease their uh, ability to deal with the alcohol and may increase their risk for, for drinking. How about people that live are alone. people that live alone? That's an interesting one. Uh, that 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 is probably uh, a mixed bag. Some people with live alone could probably drink moderately and have no problem at all. Others would have less, you know, more problems. And that has to be an individualized thing. But how about people that are taking pain medications? You know, or uh, anxiety or sleep medications? Should they be drinking? Probably not. You know, the interaction of alcohol with those drugs is very dangerous. It depresses uh, uh, breathing, and as a result, people can die from drinking alcohol at the same time they're taking pain medications, same time they're using benzodiazepines or or anxiety or sleep medications. So so you want to be able to customize the risks and the benefits of this low-level consumption and the the conditions that are caused or worsened by alcohol use are, it's a very narrow range we're not talking about drinking, you know, six packs of beer or bottles of wine when you can cause damage that, that causes damage. But rather, just at one or more drinks, you can have an exacerbation of a variety of GI problems. With two drinks, it can make it management of depression and gout, and uh, uh, there's some risk for increased risk for breast cancer, for insomnia, etc at three drinks, a very narrow range you get a lot of other negative consequences. So the point of all this is that we're talking about special risks for older people. We're talking about need for reducing consumption to safer levels so that they can avoid all of these kinds of consequences. Make sense to everyone? Any questions about any of this? Can I define older adults? Sure. So traditionally, that's a great question. Uh, uh, And arbitrarily, we said that older person is someone that's 65 and older because that's the age that people receive Medicare, right? Uh, Some people will say, well, the baby boomers, who this year are 68 years old, the first edge of them, and the youngest are 50, uh, would say, well, wait a minute here. I'm not, we need to adjust this. You know, maybe, maybe we should say an older person is someone that is 75 or 80, right? So I want to just customize it for alcohol. So when do we see the changes occurring as part of normal aging that I've described here? When are the risks that are, going to be, start beginning. And that's people in their 50s, their late 50s. And if they have serious mental illness or if they have other illnesses, it may even be earlier than that. So I think about, rather than an older person, I think about an aging process. And I think about educating people to minimize harm and maximize well-being. And that's the balance we have to strike. Yeah? Yes, are the changes more significant in in advanced old age versus younger old age? And the answer is yes, there's more more risk in younger people. I'm sorry, older people, the other way around. There's more risk for older people than for younger people. So it, it seems to be an increasing problem. But does it mean that older people, that is people in their 80s, can't drink? No, people can drink. They just have to moderate what they're drinking and make decisions that are informed decisions about what their values are, what their goals are, and minimizing their own personal risks. Yeah?
3: Does, does
0: the onset of menopause make women more vulnerable early? The onset of menopause is, uh, has currently mixed information, mixed results. Does it make women more vulnerable to the effects of alcohol? <coughs> it seems to have some moderating effect, but not a lot. The, and I, I'm not an expert in, in that particular area, but I do know that there is increased risk for breast cancer at two drinks a day is where the risk is. So two drinks a day or more increases the overall risk for breast, developing breast cancer. How that intersects with menopause, I really don't know. But it's an important issue. So, so aging makes a difference, and we should be cognizant of that, and we should really be educating our clients about it, and uh, for those that are drinking over recommended limits, do some motivational enhancement to try to to have them think about changing, reducing, or stopping their consumption. So, what's a drink? My doctor said, only one glass of alcohol a day, I can live with that. So, you know, you can't have this huge glass, or as some older people do, pre-mix their alcohol You take your orange juice, you take your vodka, you put it together in a jug in the refrigerator and it's ready to go the whole day. Not an uncommon thing. People measure their drinking by how many bottles they go through rather than by measuring their beverages. So one of the things we do on Brief Interventions is to educate people about this concept of standard drinks Standard drinks allow people to uh, have a clear idea about how much ethanol are they consuming? How much is their ethanol consumption? It's amazing to me, if I had a dime for every time I've talked about this with an older person or in a group of older people, and they go, oh, really? No idea. The public doesn't know about this. The general population of older people do not know about this. So what's the deal? Alcohol is alcohol is alcohol. There's no such thing as hard and soft beverages. If you measure your ethanol that you're drinking, the amount of alcohol you're drinking, these different beverages have the same amount of alcohol. And we call that one standard drink. So what is that? One 12 ounce of ordinary American beer. Not the big Foster's cans. (laughs) Not the malt liquor. What's malt liquor? Like uh, Colt 45, uh, Mad Dog. uh, There's a whole lot of beverages. What is that? That's fortified beer. It's beer that's been alcohol's been added to. Has bigger bang. Usually 32 ounce bottles that are uh, usually marketed in poor communities. Usually cheap, cheap alcohol, uh, but very, very high alcohol consumption. Very high alcohol content. But ordinary American beer, 35 to 4%, has the same amount, that's kind of a, a 12 ounce can, has the same amount of alcohol as a shot of distilled spirits, whiskey, vodka, one and a half ounces, one shot. That's equivalent to one beer. And that's equivalent to five ounces of uh, wine. And so, when you're thinking about wine glasses, most wine glasses are 10 ounce glasses. I think this is probably an 8 ounce glass. Um, and you can't fill the wine all the way to the tippy top of the glass. And then that, that means you're getting two drinks because it's 10 ounces. A bottle of wine has five glasses of wine. All right. Um, that one glass of wine has the same amount of alcohol as. A small glass of sherry, four ounces. Small glass of sherry, or four ounces of of other liqueurs, other sweet stuff. What's the? Who who has the preferred beverage of sherry? Who drinks sherry these days? Any guesses? Parents. Your parents. <laughs> Generally, little old ladies. Uh, uh, they love the sweet stuff. And I know this is generalizable. It's really you know kind of a a um, stereotypic thing, but. I was in Florida last year in a grocery store in line, and I'm just buying some apples or something. And there are two little ladies in front of me, and they have a shopping cart filled with the largest bottles of sherry I've ever seen. They're half, ga- half gallon bottles. They're like, really? It comes in that size? <laughs> um, so they think they're not drinking much alcohol, because they're only drinking sherry, because that that's not the hard stuff, right? But in fact, it has the same amount of alcohol in all of these. So if you, me- if you measure your beverages, 12 ounces of beer, one and a half ounces, five ounces of wine, if you measure, that's equivalent to one drink. How many maximum per day of these? One. If you educate people with that, it's a, it could have a huge impact. People don't know that. Any questions? We would just say, why bother? Because I've never been a moderation person.
3: But personally, I haven't honestly. Um, personally, I don't drink alcohol at all. But if I was going to resume drinking alcohol, I I, I know I could just have one. I wouldn't want to just
0: have one. Right. So. That's what you call someone who has a more significant problem with drinking. <laughs> and, and so we want to make sure that we, we identify those folks and help them to get to the care that they might need, so help right. them get to treatment. Which but is not very accessible in the state of New Hampshire. I, I get that. I get that. But I also know there's lots of other alternatives, like uh, mutual aid groups, AA and other groups. And I also know that a large portion of people, after they have... A health event can can also rethink what they're doing in terms of their drinking, and can get into sober long-term sobriety. So, because I've seen it, I've seen it many well,
3: actually, times. Our hospitals won't detox people mm-hmm. anymore, and some even will put you on an alcohol drip until you are medically
0: stable. That's interesting. Yeah, that's pretty bad care. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so that is part of the p- picture, but what I'm talking about is a broader piece which is people that are drinking over recommended limits, who don't have significant problems with alcohol, but would benefit from cutting down or reducing their consumption. Who can, they may be at three of these or four of these a day, and if they reduce that to one or less a day, they would have better health outcomes. And to educate them about that, and to motivate them to start thinking about that, can have a real impact. For those that can't do that, that are really off to the races and have real significant problems with alcohol, then other paths need to be worked on. And and you're absolutely right. Especially in rural areas, there's not a lot of access to care. So you have to be creative about how that would work. So I absolutely agree with that. Um, So any other questions about these standard drinks? Let's keep going then. So the bottom line is that. When you're talking with clients, with patients, you have to sort of weigh the pros and cons, the benefits and the risks. And you've got to educate people about the benefits versus the risks, and recognizing that lower risk is lower consumption. And it's their choice what they want to do. You can't force people to do what you don't... We just don't have the power to do that. People have to make their own choices. But you can educate them and... We have techniques to motivate them, and that's what we'll be talking about. Okay, um, I just wanted to talk about uh, just a little bit of other, a couple of other things that why you should care: uh, functional impairment in alcohol. Um, this is a, a very nice little study that was done by Allison Moore uh, out at UCLA, and she looked at women and men over sixty uh, who were drinking more than seven drinks a week. What are seven drinks a week? One a day, good. Um, and she looked at what we think of as important, instrumental activities of daily living. What, is the, what are those? Sort of the things to, that you have to wash cooking, taking care of yourself as part of normal living, okay? So she looked at people just drinking seven drinks per week, and she found that at that level, which is a low level, right? She found impairments in IADLs, and... The impairments were also noticed in the advanced activities of daily living, which are more advanced skills, and that when you get to three or more drinks per occasion, you also get this IADL impairments. So it's just another twist to this that at that level, people are going to have more trouble living in their homes, which is one of the goals for many of you in REAP and other agencies to maintain people's living in their homes. So small amounts of alcohol over that can actually decrease the likelihood that they'll be able to remain independent. Okay. Then another one, it also, alcohol use can increase caregiver burden. So you know, again, my, my uh, father-in-law getting the alcohol, you know, my mother-in-law feeding him the alcohol to, to manage him, was probably a terrible idea. She stopped after, after I raised the alarm. But this is an important study that was done looking at uh, geriatric patients who were undergoing assessment for cognitive problems. And about 18% <coughs> had a past alcohol problem. Very common uh, people that have had long-term alcohol problems uh, developing uh, dementing illness in later life. Uh, most of them were men. Uh, and half of them. Uh, were actively drinking at the time of the assessment. Okay, so they, were, they came in with a cognitive problem. They were actively drinking. And uh, the patients with the history of the alcohol problems, regardless of whether or not they had current use and their cognitive status, status had more behavioral disturbances, including agitation, irritability, uh, and disinhibition. And the, this is the important point of this slide. The caregivers of the patients with the current or past alcohol problems reported a lot, much higher caregiver distress. So managing the patient who's currently drinking or who has a past alcohol problem is a much more complicated story. So again, pointing to the point, the fact that we really should be dealing with the alcohol use uh, in these people. That's all I wanted to say about alcohol. Any other questions? Okay, so let's move on to prescription drugs. I know this is not necessarily a focus of what you, sh- you all do, but it is an area that uh, is emerging as a growing area. Um, I know New Hampshire, just like the rest of the country, is really uh, dealing with a um, uh, opioid in particular, uh, prescribed opioid uh, uh, epidemic. Uh, among young people, but it's also very common among older individuals in terms of having problems. So I wanted to give you a little bit of of flavor for this because I think it's important as you think about the context of alcohol interventions to think also about other other drugs. So it's estimated that one in five older Americans are at um, uh, high risk for having the combined difficulties of alcohol and medication misuse. And that's not trivial, that's a lot of people. And it, most of it focuses on the opioids, the pain medications, and the anxiolytics, the, um, the benzodiazepines. And uh, this combination is really very, very uh, risky. That is, drinking while taking these medications, as I've said. <clears throat> the main drugs that are of danger <coughs> excuse me, are the benzodiazepines, the other sedatives. The opioids, the anticonvulsants, antipsychotics, antidepressants, and barbiturates, which aren't used that much but are still not that uncommon. Um, And so I wanted to just talk a little bit about uh, some of the prescriptions that have high potential for abuse, just to give you a flavor so you have an understanding of this. The most common are these sedative hypnotics and the opioids. Uh, These include the whole range of benzodiazepines, which are used for anxiety, uh, insomnia, and even seizures, and also the barbiturates used mainly for headache. Um, And so thinking about the sedatives uh, that, you know, people take these for, uh, they're they're really aimed at uh, short-term use, uh, particularly for sleep problems yet they become long-term problems because there's never a plan, usually there's there's usually not a plan for stopping the medication. They get an acute uh, uh, dose with three or four refills, and typically they should not have these medications for more than two months, and all of a sudden they get really hooked on them. So what we see in practice is that people have been on Valium for 40 years, (laughs) you know, They have a problem with a grief reaction, and they need some uh, sleep aid to get them through this period. They end up getting on these medications, and four years later, they're still on these medications. It's a real problem. It continues to be a huge issue. Um, Older people are prescribed these drugs, the benzodiazepines, more than any other age group. And so we really should be focused on Managing these uh, medications differently, and I know again this is not the focus of what you do, but when you add this to alcohol, it becomes a real uh, a real problem. Then there's a whole class of other sleeping pills, which are heavily marketed now, like Ambien and Sonata Lunesta. You've seen the ads on newspaper on on uh, the um, uh, television, and. Um, you know these are not dissimilar to benzodiazepine, and and, and people do get addicted to them. Uh, they have good effects. They have a lot of street value. So what sometimes we see in some communities is that older people are getting these medications filled and then selling them to their grandkids, to their, to other people. Uh, <laughs> uh, we've seen it in many different places. Uh, It's a drug diversion problem, Uh, So, and not only for the sleeping pills, more commonly for the pain medications, the opioids. So uh, again, these are for uh, short-term use mainly, and uh, the risk is that they can cause uh, falls and confusion and be mistaken for other things. So uh, they should be really taken with caution. The opioid painkillers are a whole range of of short-acting and long-acting. The uh, the big uh, news has been in the oxycontin and oxycodone uh, hydrocodone uh, uh, areas because they can be crushed and um, uh, snorted, and they become very highly uh, vulnerable for abuse in younger individuals. Don't underestimate older individuals doing the same thing. You think it's not in your community. It is absolutely in your community. Uh, they're commonly out there, and I I think you should just be aware that uh, these are, are really uh, dangerous agents and can have a lot of long-term consequences. Again, the street value is very high on these. Uh, there's a lot of uh, concern nationally that people are getting hooked on these medications. And because of the street value is so high, in some places, $20, $30 a tab, uh, people are converting to heroin use. Uh, so that you get a whole constellation of things. And it's not just people in their, te- in their late teens and early 20s. It's older people in their 40s and 50s who are having problems and getting into this constellation. And there are some places I've heard of people in their 60s also getting into, into problems with this. For the opioids, no. The opioids can, can be managed long term for people that have long term uh, chronic pain. But those are really, um, uh, you know, need to be on a case by case basis. And they can be managed long term. Do you have a question back there? No? OK. So, and very dangerous combination with alcohol. So uh, we've done a lot of work looking at overdoses, uh, both fatal and non-fatal overdoses and the combination of alcohol and, and these agents are very, very uh, dangerous. There's our poster child. Who's this person? It's no way. <laughs> he doesn't have a problem. <laughs> but he was obtaining these drugs on the street, just so you know. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, uh, you know, people use it for all kinds of things, including to soften negative affect. It's amazing. People, you know, it's It's... it's uh, a way to dull not only the physical pain people may be exper- experiencing with chronic pain, but also sort of the psychological pain. Um, the, as I've said before, the dose is different for older people. They're more, more uh, vulnerable to the effects of these agents, and, um, you know, the, the short-acting ones are really uh, very commonly prescribed and it's easy to defeat the extended-release. People, you know, the drug companies market these as safer medications, the extended-release one, but you can crush them just like uh, other pills, and and they become really dangerous uh, drugs. The problems with older people is they get a lot of sedation and confusion and potential uh, respiratory depression, especially, again, with alcohol use. Okay, so we've kind of covered this. I'm gonna continue on. Um, This is an important study that was done that I, I like to highlight around um, the use of prescription drugs. And it's estimated that about 11% of older women misuse prescription drugs. It's, a, it's been a largely women-focused problem in later life. Uh, and the factors are really a number of factors uh, that people have, uh, and that one in four older adults use these agents uh, with abuse uh, potential, and that it's expected to increase dramatically in just the next uh, 10 years. So uh, this is something that you'll see more and more of, and you should at least be aware that it's out there and that you should be looking for it in your client populations. Was there a change? I thought I remember last year
2: the federal government in association, or maybe in conjunction with an article that was printed in the um, Journal of American Medicine, they wanted sweeping changes in how the opioids were going to be prescribed in terms of limits
0: placed on them? There was this whole outcry, whatever became of all of that. Well, there's a number of initiatives around the, um, around the country, I suspect uh, New Hampshire as a too. Steve, you may know this, that are uh, um, centralized uh, uh, clearinghouse for opioid prescribers. So uh, every, every prescription is logged into a state-wide uh, registry, and uh, you can look anyone up. So a provider can look up someone to find out if they're drug-seeking or not. Mm -hmm. So there's those restrictions that have been put on place. Uh, We published a paper in in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, which looked at overdose deaths and opioids and found that people that were prescribed opioids that were on a PRN or as-needed basis and at over 50 um, um, milligrams um, uh, equivalents uh, we're at very high risk, so there's been a lot of guidelines that have been issued res- resulting from that that have limited sort of the dosing and the, the uh, schedule of dosing for these agents. But other than that, I'm not aware of other restrictions that have been put in place, but there's, there's real concern because it's exploded. Mm-hmm. You know, in the last uh, 12 years or so, very huge numbers of, of negative consequences. Yeah.
2: like primary care physicians and ED physicians, who seem to get the front of this, um, don't, they don't seem, they seem to be a little bit blind to the older adult population with regard to this. And since I've been, I switched jobs recently from inpatient director at a hospital, a psych unit, to doing intakes at a private practice, well, that's not my job, but I've been doing intakes at a private practice for older adults. And what I notice is interesting is a lot of older adults, and so it's really striking to me, is the amount of people with substance abuse issues and the benefit of electronic medical record um, is that patients, older adults, will switch. So they're getting their Valium or their Benzos or whatever, and they have it from their primary care. Primary care shuts it off. They switch magically. That primary care is no longer working out. So they switch within the same health system. Mm to another primary care who has that access to that record but still gives them the meds, even though that primary care previous one said no, that can happen five times in the same health system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then they go to a primary care not in the health system who has sent us a referral. We say no, because we won't do that. They're not happy about it. It's just, and then when interestingly, I'm sorry, I missed one important piece interspersed each time the yep. primary care said no an ed visit mm-hmm. uh-huh and it's just the, and the ed gave them
0: yep mm-hmm. the, the medication right just, right so no, this is vicious amazing. cycle on this and and a system that doesn't work right. to really try to prevent you know exacerbations and problems so you you absolutely are right and that this is a very common thing unfortunately yeah and it's very frustrating and it, it provides a, it causes a lot of provider frustration also and that, mm-hmm. that's a huge problem Okay, I just want to tell you a little bit about the study, and then we're going to move on uh, out of prescription drugs. So this is a study that was done by uh, Greg Simon and others uh, with older people who received a new benzodiazepine from a primary care physician, either for insomnia or anxiety. So they come in to primary care, they're getting a new benzo, and um, after two months, 30% continue to use those benzos. Now remember what I say? They're aimed at two months or less for use, yet... Both those continuing and those not continuing daily use reported significant improvements on what did they come in for? Sleep quality, insomnia, depression, Uh, with no difference between the groups in rates of improvement. So some people continue after two months, some people stop. But you have no differences in how well they're doing at two months. Yet a significant minority developed a pattern of long-term use a pattern like we just described that can really be dangerous for individuals. So again, I think what we're going to need is a systems approach to rethink how these drugs are prescribed and that we need a plan for people to stop using them as well as to start using them. So it's something that I think will be coming in the future and that, I'm going to skip this one, um, uh, we need to be thinking about over time. So a couple more things I want to talk about, then we'll get right into the brief intervention I wanted to talk a little bit about lifetime patterns because what you see in, in your client population are really a whole range of people. And uh, I wanted to describe what are some of the common patterns that we see in older adults. Uh, and the first is this uh, early-onset problem drinker. So as you can see in here, this is just an illustration. Um, oops, oops, oops. Don't do that. Go back, go back. Sorry about that. I just wanted to press this little button that's kind of right, like there. There. Okay. There's the uh, pointer. Um, these are people that uh, have relatively low drinking level when they're young, and all of a sudden they get up to a higher level, and they continue to have long-term heavy use. This is what are the, these are the train wrecks. These are the people that you know, you can identify them because you know they're heavy drinkers. They're people that you see in, they know, you know them in your client list, you know them in your families, right? These are people that have had long-standing behavioral problems. They have a lot of physical problems. They have had multiple attempts at treatment. They've often been revolving door patients. They may have been in the ER and the inpatient in a treatment setting over many times in their life. Family members are likely to have experienced burnout. I've had enough of mothers drinking. She is out of my life. Um, the personality characteristics are similar to younger people, meaning that you get a lot more antisociality, a lot, a lot more borderline kind of characteristics. They're much more difficult to deal with. And they're more likely to drop out of treatment. Two-thirds of these people are men. About a third are women. And these are the people that have serious problems that need serious interventions. right? So there's another type, which are the so-called late-onset problem drinkers. These are people who, earlier in life, really have not had much of a problem. They may have had a little bit of increase They've gone through most of their life without any problems, and then all of a sudden they get to be in later life, and they start drinking heavily. Usually, within just two to three years, they develop from no problems to serious problems. About two-thirds of these people are women. And as you can imagine, we can be thinking about all kinds of prevention opportunities. If we can identify them, we might be able to change the course of what happens to them early enough. They're very different than the early onset people. They're, they're usually people that start drinking as within several years of multiple losses, like death of spouse or physical impairments or social support. The person living alone that you suggested earlier, you know, that, that may have not had any problem at all but because of loneliness or boredom or losses, they start drinking in later life. And they have a lot more life satisfaction than those early onset people, and they believe that treatment will be successful. They're much more optimistic. And they are, therefore, more successful in reducing their consumption and, and getting into long-term sobriety. The reality is, if you think about lifetime use, that's all over the map. So what you see in front of you is only part of the picture. And so I'd like to point out a couple of the the scenarios in here. Um, We've talked about the early onset people. That's this line here. We've talked about the late onset people. That's this kind of pinkish uh, line here. But there's also this green at the bottom, where you have episodic heavy consumption through their life. And so let's just say you screened this person at the bottom here, they would report no or very low consumption. But let's say that they've had a major health event, they're drinking to cope, they're having a lot more problems, and you screen them here, and they really could benefit from a brief intervention. Hence, we want to do regular systematic screening with individuals, because what you see today may not be what you see a year from now. There's another group. This is the yellow group. It's right here. You see there's a break here? These are people that got into long-term. They had really bad problems when they were young. They got into long-term sobriety. And they may say to you, I'm 30 years sober. I'm 25 years sober. But that doesn't mean that they might not have a problem later on. And there is a portion of people that redevelop a problem in later life, and may need assistance and need, need intervention. Um, and then you can see the other patterns here. There's lots, lots of them. There's this, this group here that may have been in the military. They get married. They had some moderation, and they stay married. But then at some point, they may have a problem because their spouse dies. So you get the, the idea of this, that it's a way for you to think about, so what would you do You want to be able to identify people on regular screening. You want to intervene early to prevent people from having more serious problems later. That's the idea. Any questions about this? All right. So a little bit about comorbidities, because these things really go together. So uh, I'm not talking about it in my slides, but one of the big indices of people with uh, At risk drinking are people that in later life are people that are smokers. So I forgot to put that slide in here, but if you've got a smoker, the likelihood that they're a drinker also is very high. So you want to make sure you're paying attention to that as one of the risk factors. But more commonly, is these whole array of mental disorders, which include depression, cognitive loss, and anxiety disorders, if you if you have your clients that have any of these, the likelihood that they'll also have at-risk drinking is very high. They co-occur very often, especially in later life. Um, there's some suggestion uh, of work that Steve did, and, and that work that I've done also, that concurrent alcohol use and depression may be more common in later life than in younger people. And that we've already talked about the The moderate or at risk drink is much more common than dependence. And the problem we have is that we have fragmented care. We have our alcohol and drug treatment here. We have our aging services here. We have our mental health services here. And we have physical health yet someplace else. And so one of the benefits of you guys being here, like the REAP program, is that this is a way to do some combination of things. You have the opportunity to help people uh, with their at-risk drinking at a place in their life that, in their home, that allows you to have special privileges in in understanding that and making an impact. And so recognizing that when you find someone that has a depression or an anxiety problem, uh, the drinking may also be part of that and that you can help bridge that fragmentation because you're going to have the tools after today of actually doing something about it. The last thing about mental disorders is around suicide. The highest risk for suicide is not young people. It's older people. The highest risk among older people are those older white men who are depressed, drinking heavily, and recently lost their partners. And they're really, really at risk. And remember, you probably already know this, the vast majority of them have seen their primary care provider in the last week. And they're not detected because they don't present with drinking problems. They don't present with depressed mood. And so you really want to be able to ask these questions. And if you find someone scoring highly on the PHQ-9, if someone endorses the ninth question, which is the suicide question, or if someone endorses scores uh, within the at-risk category on the audit C, we're going to show you what those instruments are, you want to do something about it if you find out also that they are recently bereaved and are living alone. And you might also ask about whether they have guns in the house, because 80% of suicides in later life is from firearms. and so. Really addressing the bigger picture is something that's very important. And it's that constellation of drinking, depression, bereavement that's very, very powerful and accounts for most of the suicides in later life. Okay. Any questions? Yeah. Have, sure. Have, have I ever heard of a dry drunk? Do I know what that term means? Uh, it's often referred to people who have had a serious alcohol problem in their life, but haven't really resolved all of the other issues. They've stopped drinking, but they haven't resolved all the issues that go along with that in terms of abusive behavior, uh, 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 irritability, uh, all of the things that, that, that are sometimes associated with their drinking, They've stopped the drinking, but they still have all these behaviors. That's how it's often referred to. And that can be something that people can address in psychotherapy, in marriage therapy, uh, just all different kinds of ways to address people that have other enduring issues after they stop drinking.
3: So that could be interpreted as someone having some
0: mental health issues and then... It can be. It can be. There's all kinds of patterns that people can get into in terms of other mental health problems or other prescription drug misuse, and so you know there's lots of constellations that get, that can happen. Yeah, it's a good question. Okay, any other questions? Then I'm going to talk a little bit about screening so that we can just get through this. So here are some of the signs and symptoms of alcohol problems in in later life, and. If I had put up on the screen instead of alcohol problems, I said uh, depression, would this seem like it's familiar? Or dementia? Does it seem kind of familiar to you? With the exception of a couple things. So clearly, uh, increased uh, tolerance to alcohol and um, where are blackouts? Blackouts are uh, clearly very specific to alcohol. But if we took those two things out, does it seem like kind of, well, maybe it's depression. Or maybe it's, it's dementia. My point is, these symptoms are nonspecific. So the only way to detect people with at-risk drinking is to screen them systematically. You will not know. You'll be able to find the train wrecks, the people having a lot of problems. If there's a lot of bottles around in their home, alcohol containers, that's a sure sign. But otherwise, it's very hard to detect these people, especially if you, you don't hit them. Because they'll know you're coming, and they can clean themselves up, so to speak. right? You won't be able to detect them. So you've got to screen. So um, what about screening? Well, you kind of want to know about alcohol consumption. So let's talk about the audit, which is the recommended screening instrument at this point. Um, Well validated with older people. And that's in your screening packet. It's the audit questionnaires. So the full audit is here. It's very easy to administer. But what I recommend is that you focus on the first three questions. This is, these are the consumption questions. It's the audit C, audit consumption. <clears throat> Everyone know where we are. It's the uh, it's called audit questionnaire and scoring. Not the not the leaf booklet, but the instrument. All right. So the first three questions. Um, is the audit, audit C. And um, you can ask these questions very quickly. I change one of the questions, which is number three, because I say five or more drinks, because that's the limit for an older individual, rather than six or more drinks. But other than that, this gives you an understanding of whether they, um, how often they drink alcohol how many drinks they drink on a typical day, and how many times they're drinking over the recommended limits. And these are, if you add these up, these are the audit audit C questions and are a good indication that whether or not they they are over the recommended limit or under the recommended limit. The rest of the instrument is very useful to uh, just be able to ask questions that are validated and are the consequence questions. So with one instrument, 10 items, you can get both consumption and consequences. And you want to be able to ask about quantity, frequency, and binge drinking. And um, you also want to know, maybe, depending on your setting and your your client, whether or not they've had any consequences. And then you can ask the entire version of the audit. We also developed the MASG, the Michigan Alcohol Screening Test Geriatric Version, which is another elder-specific uh, screening instrument. There's another way to do this uh, if you decide to want, you want to ask these questions. The MassG is the next question. Is a short version and a long version. And then further in your packet is the Health Screening Survey. This is a screening survey that was developed at the University of Wisconsin. This embeds the alcohol questions with other health behaviors. So depending on your setting, you may say, Well, you know, you really want to know about uh, other behaviors. It softens the alcohol focus and kind of just spreads it out across other risk behaviors. Uh, And some people feel that this is a better way people get less reaction to this. I'm not so concerned about that. I want an efficient way to screen. I'd rather have you screen with three questions, if you're going to do it, than to ask these larger questions, which are, are more time consuming. But they're very good. Uh, I included the geriatric depression scale, but I know many of you are using the PHQ-9, which is a very fine instrument uh, and a very efficient one to to detect uh, uh, depression and uh, suicidality. So those are the instruments. They're very straightforward. I recommend them highly. The Audit C is really a very good instrument. Any questions? Yes? Do you like the cage? I don't like the cage, The CAGE um, is an older instrument that was developed for younger people and focused on four questions. Have you ever tried to cut down on your drinking? Has anyone ever annoyed you by criticizing your drinking? Have you ever felt guilty uh, by your uh, consumption of alcohol? Have you ever had a drink in the morning uh, as an eye-opener? C-A-G-E is the acronym. Um, The problem with the CAGE is that older people don't endorse the guilt, so you end up having a pretty bad instrument because one question doesn't work for older people. And so it's better to ask the, the uh, audit C. And then if you want consequences, you can ask the short mast G, which is elder-specific, or you can ask the rest of the audit. Either are good. But, you know, um, the, the old mast and the... Um, Audit, you know, people, older people don't get into fights after drinking usually. You know, there, there are things that just aren't, that aren't endorsed. So why ask them those questions? You want to detect it. Yeah, exactly. Any other questions about screening? Yes? i That's okay. In general, I mean, I'm often frustrated and just a little confused because when we're having discussions about alcohol and other substances, we don't often talk about marijuana I um, I totally agree. Actually, S- Steve and I talked a lot about marijuana uh, research that we're doing last night, uh, especially with medical marijuana. I know New Hampshire's recently approved medical marijuana here. Uh, Michigan did about four or five years ago. <clears throat> we have a, a project from um, NIDA on uh, medical marijuana. Um, I, I totally agree with that. The problem is you've got to pick your fights, and you've got to pick what you're going to focus on, and frankly, alcohol is ubiquitous. It's very common, especially in older adults. Cannabis use or marijuana use is much more common or, uh, in baby boomers. And so we want to make sure we're e- evolving to do better work around understanding heavy marijuana use. But we are not there yet. So I hear your frustration. I agree with it. But I think let's start with, with something that is very doable which is a three-question audit screen that allows you to get a consumption of alcohol, and then add other things to it. So if you go into the house and it reeks of marijuana, then you can start having a dialogue about that. You know, the frustration I have is that there is a notion that is a safer drug, which is no evidence about that for, for older people. So I think we have to be very careful about how we educate people about what is safe and what is risky. So, that's my editorial about it. But I think you're you're right on about it. Any other questions? Yes. When you're doing the um, the questions for the audience, the first three questions, it measures how many drinks you have. So, is that the the point that you educate about what is... You You can. Mm -hmm. You can or you can just let it vary. I guess what I would do is that If it's going to be taking you more time and it's going to be a barrier to asking the questions, don't educate them. Just ask them a question. Because you're trying to get at a threshold. So it doesn't really matter how, how, unless they're drinking, you know, quarts of, of vodka as one drink, then you want them to estimate it. And an estimate is perfectly fine because you're trying to get an understanding of, is it over the threshold of one drink a day? Is it over the threshold of five or more drinks on a, drinking, on a drinking day, drinking occasion? And if so, they're a candidate for a brief intervention to try to reduce that risk. If you try to get very precise measurement, it's going to take a lot longer. And there's good measurement, something called the timeline follow-back method. It's a very good it's calendar method for um, very deliberately getting a detailed summary of what they're using and when they're using. But that's a much more complicated. Yeah, that's going to take you 15, 20 minutes. So you can
2: say to them, show me, show me the glass usually.
0: You can do that, yes. And you can how estimate. Much you fill it. Yep, how much you fill it. You get what do you what you could ask them, what's your typical drink, what's your what's your beverage of choice? What do you like drinking? What's your favorite drink? That way you can get a sense of, well, they're drinking mostly beer, they're combining beer with sometimes with other distilled products. So you can get a sense of that. And then you can know how much. Some people will not know how much. I don't know how much I'm drinking. I'm drinking, you know, I drink. I go through usually a bottle of beer. I mean, sorry, a bottle of wine a day. Mm -hmm. Then you know that's five drinks, you know. Uh, If they're going through a bottle of vodka, which size bottle? You know, because it's a big difference between a pint and a quart. So don't ever underestimate. And part of what you want to do around screening is to convey that any answer is a fine answer. You're non-judgmental. You're really trying to gather information, and it really can be a no big deal. The best information that you can get is for people that have not been drinking, so they don't have alcohol on board when you ask the questions, that you ask the questions in a non-judgmental, no big deal way. Uh, What I've done clinically is to say, You you say, well, I don't know how much I drink. And I say, well, just think about a typical drinking day. Do you drink a couple cases of beer? It's so far above what anyone would think about it. They're willing to tell me, no, I only drink a case. And that's not unusual. You know, when you get heavy drinkers, they can put away a lot of alcohol. You know, I mean, we're talking about consumption Weekly consumption of 60 drinks a week, 65 drinks a week, you wonder how they're still alive, right? Um, So you're giving the message that it's okay to tell you anything. Uh, You have to be cognizant because many of you are working in people's homes. So one of the reasons that people don't give good quality information is that they fear that they'll be reprisals for telling you what they're drinking because they may be kicked out of their housing or their parole might depend on their, on their uh, being sober. So if that's the case, you need to really reassure them about the confidentiality of it, about that it's safe and okay for, you, for them to tell you what's going on with them. So those are some of the circumstances that you can get pretty good quality information. Don't assume that people are trying to hide anything. They may not recall things, but I think it's more important to say, all right, we're trying to get a threshold here. Are they drinking over the threshold or under the threshold? You're not trying to get an absolute. If you try to get the absolute, it's going to cost you a lot of time. And it's going to be unreliable. We know that. There people underestimate how much they're consuming. And if I asked most of you over the last week to tell me right now, how many drinks did you have last week? You know what the drinks are now? How many drinks are there? I don't think many of you could count it up unless you are a very rare drinker or unless you don't drink at all. (laughs) Because it's hard to get that recall. So you're trying to get a sense from them on a typical day, on a typical week, how much are they consuming? And have they had days where they're drinking more than recommended? So that's kind of the idea. Any other questions? All right, let's keep going. So when do you screen? Well, every person over 60, this is part of a, a, a treatment consensus uh, group that I chaired nationally. We recommend that every person 60 and older um, be screened uh, as part of a regular physical exam. The brown bag approach is bring all your medications in so you can encourage your clients. When you go to the doctor for your physical, make sure you bring all your medications with you so that it can get reviewed in hand every single medication that you're on. And that can be reviewed for interactions with alcohol, that can be reviewed for any disused medication, and any medication interactions. You want to screen or rescreen when there are physical symptoms present or if the person is undergoing major life transitions. Those are trigger points. They're trigger points for increasing consumption, changing of housing, retirement, loss of significant others, health changes all trigger points for increasing consumption. Don't forget about collateral information. Now, it's a two-edged sword because the family members may not know what's going on, or they might know. The housing managers or the senior center staff may know, or they may not know. So you can get other collateral information from people, but you've got to be careful about that. And uh, caregivers can be very useful in trying to get people access to treatment, encourage them to go to treatment, but there's also negative things around caregivers and their interaction with their loved ones. So you have to be careful about that also, and certainly about confidentiality. Okay, so any questions so far? That's kind of a, a very concise, focused issue of what are some of the key things you should know about with... Aging vis-a-vis alcohol and uh, uh, medications. Any other questions? All right. Well, let's talk about uh, uh, motivational brief interventions then. (coughs) So I like to show this uh, graphic to just point out what we're talking about. It gives another way of thinking about it. You know, we've typically thought about what we might intervene with in terms of alcohol use and alcohol problems. As people with the most heavy use of alcohol, the most severe problems, that is this tip of the triangle, the people that are dependent on uh, alcohol. And we've organized much of our structures and our, our treatments around that. So for the few treatments that do exist in the community, it's for specialized, more severe problems. And the approach that we're trying to get to is to broaden the array of of interventions that are appropriate for older people that include people that have risky drinking uh, and problematic drinking uh, and that may have less severe problems and lighter consumption. That's the whole idea. If you focus with your older clients just on identifying and intervening with people with the most severe problems, you're missing the boat. The real action is not there. Older people with serious problems represent between 2 and 4% of the over po- overall population. It's a small portion. But if you expand it to the at-risk drinkers, we're talking 18 20% of the older population. So if your mindset is you're going to identify those with the more severe problems, and they're the ones that are most appropriate for your interventions, you're not doing the public health approach that I'm trying to teach you today. And and you're really, the older person's missing the opportunity to get needed intervention to reduce their consumption, to reduce their risk. So that's the whole idea behind this. Um, There's a whole spectrum of interventions that one could think about. You know about these already. But I just wanted to contextualize brief interventions within this. The first is prevention and education. We still need to do prevention and education with individuals because these individuals are in our communities and could really benefit from understanding things like standard drinks, because they may have a loved one that could use that information. Um, Brief advice. What's brief advice? You need to stop drinking. That's brief brief. advice. And how effective is that? Not particularly. Now, if it's coming at the right time by the right intervener in the right moment, it might be somewhat effective. right? Some people will be receptive at the right time with a teachable moment in a primary care visit or an emergency department visit. And some people might benefit pretty well with a two-minute advice session, brief advice. But generally, we don't think they're very effective, so we should really focus on brief interventions. We're going to spend the rest of the time talking about that. Pre-treatment interventions, what are those? They're interventions aimed at getting people motivated to go to treatment. And they can be very instrumental in getting people to think about and prepare for seeking care. And these brief interventions can be partly motivating for people to actually go to specialized care. Whether that's in the community or other kinds of settings is the question. And there's new, new information, new ways of delivering these interventions that I think are going to be uh, coming that are electronic and other ways to monitor people. It'll be, I think, a really interesting Uh, change from how we deliver it now. And then you know the formal specialized treatments that have eroded enormously in this country but is starting, in my view, with mental health parity to be built up again with some funding of these agencies. So hopefully that's going to continue to to grow. So that's kind of the context of brief interventions. Um, I'm going to... uh, You've had motivational interviewing this morning. You get in motivational interviewing. I'm going to skip through these motivational interviewing slides because, except for this one, I wanted to just talk about uh, one of the things I, have, I assume you talked about this morning, which is one of the key things you're trying to do in motivational interviewing is to address people's ambivalence. Right? Did you talk about that today? And so it can be very powerful as a technique to address that ambivalence. I was going to have you do, you've already talked about ambivalence, so these are kind of repeat. Um, and that uh, the most common place to get stuck on the road to change is ambivalence. There's lots of reasons to change and reasons not to. Ambivalence is normal, and you do reflective work around change talk to sustain talk. I assume you've kind of covered all this stuff this morning. OK. I see the shaking of heads. Um, So I was going to have you do a couple practices, but you know about ambivalence, so we're not going to do this. I want to get into the brief intervention. And we've covered all that for the motivational intervention. Okay, And you've got the slides here so you can review ambivalence, if you're ambivalent or not ambivalent. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, So what are some of the barriers people have about seeking um, treatment? And, And one of the things that I like to think about around motivational enhancement interventions is that it can be very effective at having people address some of their ambivalence around this. So, um, you know, older people are unique generally because there's lots of resistance for asking for help. They really don't want to be a burden. And they really feel very reluctant to ask for help. And that's a huge problem when we're talking about whether it's depression care or at risk drinking. It's a huge problem. We also know that they have a real disdain for labels. So my parents are in their mid-80s. My mother will tell you that she is not elderly. She might say that she's old, but she's not elderly. Be very careful about these labels. Older people are very sensitive to uh, to these labels. And one of the worst things you can be is an alcoholic. Why? Because especially of the current generation of older people, being an alcoholic is being a moral degenerate, that you are morally bankrupt compared to baby boomers who think of it as an illness and something that c- you need to get treatment for. <laughs> you know, we think of it very differently than the current cohort of older individuals. So. Labels make a difference. So when you're doing interventions, don't get hung up on those labels, because they're unimportant. What's important is that people are starting to think about what is the role of alcohol in their lives, and what are their goals, and how do they meet their goals through changing their consumption. Uh, oops, sorry. Um, lack of transportation. You all know this already, but I, you know, it's astounding to me that this is a big barrier for people to get services. You know they may drive the two miles to the grocery store, but if they have to go across the railroad tracks, they're not going to go across the railroad tracks because that is too far for them. So transportation is really a big deal. So the great thing about Reap is that you're in their house; you're delivering services where they are, and so you can do things that you know most programs can't do, and that's really exciting to address those uh, the transportation problem. Um, Older people, you know, most people that are younger who have significant problems have uh, significant others to assist them in motivation. Because at the end of the day, you may lose your house, you may lose your family, you may lose. Older people often don't have those social constraints and so that it's harder for you to think about how they're gonna get motivated. And then we know that providers are less likely to refer older adults and there's all those gaps again. So it's really a big problem. And so brief interventions started as a way to intervene with individuals with a behavioral intervention way back in the early 70s, when it was thought that, well, behavioral interventions really were not effective for doing very much of anything. It was this more psychodynamic kind of approach. And and so a really smart guy in England came up with an idea of what if both general practitioners, primary care providers, delivered a smoking intervention. So at the time, smoking prevalence was 40% in the population. It was really high, especially in England. And he figured out, well, you know what, if we had a primary care doc that just said, you know, we need to do something about this. Your smoking is really causing you a lot of harm. And let's think about ways for you to address that. And that brief intervention that was started and published in 1972 was really a landmark. And now there were studies that have been done over the years, including a big multinational World Health Organization study of an alcohol brief intervention extended to alcohol. And other behaviors over these many years have really been demonstrating and having the evidence base that a 15 to 20 minute brief motivational enhancement intervention can be effective in reducing consumption of alcohol. Project TREAT was the first primary care intervention. Uh, The rates of number of studies done uh, on brief interventions have gone up exponentially. There is now over 30,000 articles around this. Um, There are all kinds of things that these interventions have done, these motivational interview uh, outcome studies including alcohol, of course, we've been talking about, but eating disorders, and family, and cancer, and dual diagnosis, and diabetes, and asthma. Just a whole range of approaches using this motivational interviewing uh, principles and motivational enhancement model. The evidence base is strong. There are over 200 randomized controlled trials for alcohol alone. Uh, The uh, meta-analyses show that you get small and medium effect sizes. And the idea of these interventions is they're broad public health interventions. You do them for a wide range of individuals, and even though you get relatively small gains, they are gains, and you can have huge impact on the health of the population. Um, You know, you don't have very many minorities in New Hampshire, but the effects are actually higher in minority populations, which is amazing. And uh, if you put the, the motivational interviewing combined with another treatment, you get bigger effects. So you, do, uh, you deal with someone's depression, and you do uh, activation with depression, and you add the motivational enhancement to that with alcohol, you get a bigger effect. So there's synergies around these things. Um, then there's this whole SBIRT model that's been <clears throat> promulgated around the country. Based on all this research, including our own, um, which is screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment, the idea is that you do population-based screening so that all your clients you screen on a regular systematic basis. For those that screen positively on your key issue, alcohol, at-risk drinking, you intervene with them using a brief approach. And for those that have more serious problems, you refer them. This model, has been shown to be very effective in reducing problems. So who can conduct these? I, these are just some of the healthcare workers that I've trained over the years. <clears throat> I believe I can train just about anyone to do these. They're straightforward, brief interventions that are very powerful. And they're workbook-driven, so you can have a basically a guide to help you with that. Um, where can they be done? I have trained people, I've done research in all of these settings. Um, including, people say, well, substance abuse treatment. We do brief interventions all the time, motivational enhancement interventions in substance abuse treatment to encourage people to follow through with their treatment plans, to come back for another session, to all kinds of things. So they can be used for targeting all kinds of behaviors, not just risk reduction focused on someone's alcohol use. And then there are uh, two core studies that have been conducted with older adults in particular, now with two other studies added to this, which I won't cover. But the first one that I'll cover is the uh, Project Gold. This was the one done in the University of Wisconsin. Uh, this was uh, brief physician advice using a workbook uh, for older adults that were screened in primary care who were identified as at-risk drinkers, and it reduced consumption for 12 months. So imagine. An intervention that is 15 to 20 minutes long, reducing alcohol consumption for a whole year. It's amazing. Um, 35 to 40% change. We did this one in Michigan, the Health Profile Project. It was an elder-specific motivational enhancement. We screened people in primary care, but we conducted the intervention in home And uh, we reduced at-risk drinking at 12 months, also 35% change, a much larger study, uh, demonstrating that this can be done in home settings and that it makes a difference, sustained out to 12 months. Really amazing. So our knowledge about these is that they can reduce alcohol use for at least 12 months, that the motivational enhancement is effective. When we first studying this topic, I wasn't convinced that older adults would be willing to even engage in this. I thought they'd tell me to go to hell, <laughs> you know? And we found no resistance. That's one of the big concerns that providers have about, oh, I can't talk about that. <coughs> and the excuses are, it's too private. People aren't going to react badly. None of that happens. You know, talk about private things all the time when you're in people's space, right? So. They're really effective. Um, the approach is acceptable. As I said, it can be conducted in all kinds of places. Uh, it reduces alcohol-related harm in terms of fall reduction, emergency department, uh, reduced use, health care, reduced care, uh, health care uh, utilization. So it has some really good benefits for older people. And it's pretty straightforward to do. So, did you talk about FRAMES this morning? Probably. The key components. So, um, this is a way for you to think about it, and we're going to talk about the steps of the brief intervention momentarily, but this is a, um, a, some of the key elements of brief interventions, and FRAMES is an acronym to help you remember that it contains feedback, giving people feedback about what their use is like compared to others. It contains Uh, the idea that the responsibility for change is not with you, the intervener, but with the person that you're intervening with. They get to choose what they do, right? You talked about responsibility, I assume, this morning. That it contains advice. That you're actually providing people with advice to cut down, to change their behavior. And you're doing that in a concrete way. Giving people a menu of choices. None of us like to be told this is how you do it. This is what you got to do, but rather talking about what are some of the options and how do they think about what of the uh, key elements that are important. Expressing empathy—that uh, is, that you know, behavioral change is hard, and that sometimes it takes you a few tries to make this work. But in the ultimate goal, you can make a difference in your life and this will really improve your health. And then finally, uh, supporting self-efficacy, that these are things that you can do to help yourself to make your life better and that you can do this. This is really important. So those are some of the key tenets. You can learn more about these. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these because this is about giving people feedback. We just went through that. responsibility that the person that is going to change is is the uh, client, not the practitioner. You can't force people to change. The cartoon is, it's my life, and I'll do whatever I want with it. I'm my own person. It's my life, and I'm the one who has to live with it, Eh, with a little help. (laughs) So you know, that's part of the sense of this, that you're trying to also help people in their change. You can give uh, people advice and a menu uh, of options. Give people choices. Three is ideal. The first step is um, uh, giving a choice and making a change in behavior. Lose some weight, quit smoking, move around more, and eat the carrot. <laughs> um, empathy, you want to listen carefully, be reflective, don't impose your values on the person, and, and help clarify what the, what the client is saying, what the person is meaning. Self-efficacy, you build up the person's ability to change, to be successful, be optimistic, and um, simple goals early, and then success breeds success, and you can increase self-efficacy over time by being uh, increasing self-confidence. And then, um, you know, I think it's really important that it's, it's key for you to focus on what is the relevance of this to the person and what we do with the brief intervention you'll see momentarily is to get to elicit from the person what's what are their goals, what are the things that are important to them. So relevance is important. Um, You know, talking a little bit about the risks. We've covered the risks today, but people don't understand those risks. So giving people some more education about the risks of continuing to use. Giving people ideas about what are some of the rewards having less risk for medication interactions, having better health, better ability to stay in their homes. And then if you're seeing someone over time, giving them little boosters each time you see them. How's that working for you? Remember we talked about that last time? We'll do a little bit of follow-up in a minute. You'll see what that is. Okay? So any questions or thoughts at this point? All right, let's talk about the brief intervention session. We go to 3.30? Yes. Yes, okay. Um, so, <clears throat> what's this session look like? Well, I, I like to think of it as uh, multi-step. And it's completely guided by that booklet which you have with the, with the leaves on it. And basically, we do uh, identifying future goals. We give people summary of health habits. We address the issue of standard drinks. We talk about types of older drinkers. We talk about consequences of at-risk drinking. We talk about reasons to quit or cut down, drinking agreement and plan, and risky situations and alternatives. That's it. And we do all of this in 20 minutes. So you've got to really practice to get fast at doing it. So, The way I set this up is, I go, when I'm talking with the person, I say to them, today I want to talk with you about a variety of your health behaviors, and I want to talk with you particularly about your use of alcohol. I like to set it up, if at all possible, to sit next to the person. What does that do? It's your partner. You're you're at the same level. You're not not confronting someone face to face. You're allowing the interaction to be a much more flowing, easier interaction. Ideally, you've already screened them. You know that they're drinking over recommended limits. They're at risk drinkers. So that's why you're doing this intervention. That screening might have occurred that day. You might have asked them those questions today. Or it might have been done at a previous time, and you're revisiting them. So you set this up. This is just a a conversation that we're going to have as part of what we we do as part of our program. So what I'm going to do today is talk with you about your drinking and other behaviors. And this is a little workbook that we go through, and this is yours to keep. So this is not something that you're going to take with you, the intervener. This is the clients to have for themselves. And this will help you for you to refer back to. You can keep this. You can think about, well, what would you use this for in the future? I like to put the person's name on the front page because it customizes it for them. Others feel like that is potentially violating confidentiality because others may see it. You can use your judgment about that. But I like to say, this is yours to keep. This is something that's going to be really helpful to you. Thank you for for working with me today. I think it's going to be really kind of an interesting thing, and I think it might be very helpful to you. Then I turn the page, and I talk about... Well, the first thing I want to talk with you about is, what are some of your goals? What are some of the things that you want in your life over the next year or two? And around your living situation, around your health, around your finances, around your family life. Tell, tell me more about what are some of your goals. And by the way, you're doing the writing. If you let the older person do the writing, you will never finish.
3: <laughs>
0: so you're doing the writing. And what you're trying to do here is elicit from them some of the things that are important to them setting it up that you're, you're gaining information that will be useful as you go through the rest of the intervention. Make sense? Okay. So <clears throat> this makes, you know, when you, I think this morning you may have talked about developing a discrepancy and thinking about where is the person now and where do they want to be a year from now? And the hook for me on this is if they can't come up with anything. So some will be say I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what my goals are. Well, almost universally, people have the goal of staying in their home, being able to maintain their independence. And you can suggest that goal. It's a pretty powerful goal. Um, So, this gives gives people an understanding, gives you an understanding of what are their valued goals and what can you start referring back to as you go through the rest of the intervention. Any questions? Okay, you turn the page. The next thing is to talk about a summary of their health habits. Now, if you've done screening already, which is likely, but you may not have. Uh, And you may not have asked all these questions. Either way, you can have this this pre-filled out if you know the answers, or you can ask these questions during the session. And the reason we like to have these other things here, exercise, nutrition, and tobacco, is to to make this a broader health-related construct, and not just focused entirely on alcohol especially at the beginning. Because you're trying to get better rapport with the individual. You're trying to connect with them. It makes it a lot more salient, and um, it's a softer approach. It's a more kid-glove approach than a more, uh, um, well, today we're just talking about your alcohol use. So let's say you're asking these questions. You go through all these questions. You turn the page. You say, I also want to talk about your alcohol use. and. And here's what you reported, or you may ask these questions. And, and you can change these depending on how you're thinking and what your, your agency is thinking about who you want to intervene with. So the categories can be exactly the same as the audit. See if you want to. Or can be this more, more specific way of doing it. Either way is fine. But this gives you a model to work with. And then you're going to ask about binge drinking. And then the, the, the middle question here, On days that you do not drink, do you feel anxious, have greater difficulty sleeping than usual, feel your heart racing, have heart palpitations, or have the shakes or hand tremors? We ask this question to get a sense of uh, risk for withdrawal. We want to be careful about the risk for severe withdrawal because that can be life-threatening. And what you want to know is, Have they had some of these experiences so that you're not going to recommend to them that they stop drinking, but rather have a step-down approach for reducing their consumption? The risk of withdrawal is entirely uh, for people that uh, stop drinking from high levels to low levels. The overall consensus of a number of experts in the field, including myself, is that if people are drinking in older people in excess of 28 drinks a week that's four drinks a day you need to be careful about withdrawal management and you don't want to recommend that people stop drinking if they're drinking at that high level and actually that's not that high but for an older person it's right it's it's getting up there so four drinks a day or more or 28 drinks a week is starting to put people at much higher risk for this withdrawal. So we want to manage that and be careful about it. And then the last question on this page is, are any of these health behaviors, um, exercise, nutrition, tobacco use, alcohol use, with which you'd like to have some help? And you know, uh, in in all these years of doing this, I don't think I've had more than a handful of people that say, yeah, it's my alcohol use. They're very willing to, to discuss stopping smoking. They may have tried to do that before. They're willing to, to think about exercising more, having better nutrition. If you're asking this question, again, you can modify this slightly if you want. But if you're asking this question, you've got to be prepared to say to them about, alcohol, about exercise, tobacco, or uh, nutrition. That's a great goal for you to think about changing that behavior but today I want to talk with you about alcohol use, but I can refer you to other things. You've got to have referrals, you've got to have other resources for them. If you're going to ask that question, you've got to give them something, right? Give them some brochure or some material. But if you're not going to ask that, if you're going to ask that question, um, you, you want to be able to say, and this is a hard transition, this is one of the few transitions that's difficult in this intervention. You want to be able to get to the next page. So you want to be able to say, these are all really great behaviors. They're good things for you to be thinking about changing. But what I want to talk with you today is about your alcohol use. Okay, that's the goal. And then you just turn the page. So this gives people feedback. It helps them with doing some self-reflection about potentially, well, maybe this is something I should start thinking about more. You know. So so far, we've spent seven or eight minutes. This is pretty fast. You zip through this pretty quickly. If you spend more than a half an hour on this brief intervention, this is a motivational, educational intervention with some behavioral content. If you spend more than 30 minutes, you're doing therapy. This is not therapy. This is not aimed at that. This is, that's a, it's a different thing than motivational interviewing. Does that make sense to you, that distinction? OK. So you're starting to stimulate individual self-reflection, and I think this is really productive. The next thing are standard drinks. You all know about standard drinks. How many a week? How many a day? Different between men and women? Okay. So you're going to customize it. You're going to do what I did today to give people a description about many people don't realize that different beverage alcohol has the same amount of alcohol. And the key is measuring. And here's what the difference in equivalence are. Pretty straightforward. So when you told me that you were drinking three drinks a week, or whatever it is, the previous, it's going to be more than that, because you're going to 10 drinks a week, um, you may have been not thinking about this. So you may be drinking even more than that, because you probably weren't thinking about these equivalents. And often, what will come out of that is people will say, oh yeah, I don't measure what I'm doing, I don't, I don't have any idea. And that'll give people an idea that maybe they were had an underestimate of where they were in the previous conversation. Make sense? Okay. The next thing is reasons to quit or cut down. The first part of this is to... Um, uh, which is page seven of your, your materials here, is to talk about um, how they fit into the overall population of drinkers. And what you see on the bottom is that the majority of older people never drink or drink less than one drink a year. And that is um, people that we call abstainers. That's a large portion of the population. And then you see the small little piece, these, the, the 5%. Those are the alcohol-dependent people. Well. I don't see you as either of those. You're kind of in the middle. And I, and I would say that what you're doing, your drinking pattern is more in the at-risk or moderate drinking. And it's defined here. You're drinking over seven drinks a week. You have, at, you have a higher risk for negative health and social consequences. You're drinking even though you're taking these medications. And sometimes you're driving uh, drinking uh, while having other health problems. That's all you want to say. It's contextualizing where they are compared to their peers. And again, people that drink don't have any concept that they are very different than their peers. (laughs) All right. Uh, Then reasons to cut down. Um, uh, So page eight is talking about the consequences of at-risk or problem drinking. And... Um, basically what you're trying to do here is to, uh, in an open-ended way, get them to tell you more about, well, what are some of the positive effects of alcohol? What do they experience as some of the positives? People, remember that ambivalence we were talking about before? And you had discussion this morning? This is where you're trying to sort of address some of the ambivalence that people experience. And part of the ambivalence is to talk about, well, Acknowledge it. So, what's good about it? And what you have here are some of the things, the common things that people report as positive. So, the goal in this is not to go through this as a checklist. Well, do you experience a temporary high? Do you experience? Th- that's not. That's not what you're trying to do. You're trying to ask open-ended questions and have them come up with what with what their response is and. These categories are here just for you to quickly be able to, to check it off. And there's lots of white space for you to write in all kinds of additional comments. So when they're saying something to you, well, I like to drink with my buddies when we're playing cards or when we're golfing. You can write that in the margins. Drinks with buddies, you know. So that, again, this is for them. You're recording what they're saying. Then you're going to ask about negative consequences. What are some of the things that they're experiencing or have experienced or could experience about drinking that are part of the negative consequences? What this does is provide a framework for you to talk about the positives and the negatives. You notice there's a lot more negatives than positives. Um, To be able to tip that decisional balance from, well, I don't care what I'm drinking because it's not causing me any problems to maybe I should be caring about drinking because it could cause, cause me problems or is causing me problems. That par- pros and cons is something you want to try and tip uh, in favor of changing um, their, um, their drinking. And then the next section is, I don't know if i am going to slide about this, no, um, is reasons to cut uh, or uh, to quit or cut down and then what you what you say is that, you know, based on everything you've told me and your goals, your goals are really to see your grandkids more and to, to be able to live in your house. And based on what we just talked about, you know, it seems to me that you're having potentially some risk here because you're drinking at levels that place you at risk for being hospitalized, for potentially having injuries, for all kinds of things. And so, it seems to me that you, you might want to think about quitting or cut, cutting down. Can you think about uh, what are some of the reasons that you might think about that? And there, here are some of the reasons that, that, again, are the common reasons that we've come up with to save money, to be happier, to reduce the possibility of a car crash, to have better relationships. It gives you some of the ideas that people have. Well, given all those things, you might come up with one or two of these, maybe three or four depending on what the person really is thinking about. The next section is to write down the three most important reasons you choose to cut or cut down or, or quit drinking. And you just list those. So this is saying, you know, well, those are really good reasons. It seems to me that that seems like a really good thing for you to be doing. And can you think about, the last part of this, can you think about how this might um, impact your physical health or your... Uh, family relationships or your mental health. Can you think about how this might, you know, help you with your goals, with you reaching the goals? And that's the last part of this this section. So that's the reasons to quit and cut down. And again, you're trying to get them to the next page, which is to say, based on everything you've said and everything we've talked about, now you're on about minute 16 of your intervention. Mm -hmm. So it's not taking, we're taking more time today than so you've got to know this really well and you've got to practice this with some colleagues, with some Confederates to be able to get familiar with this but I guarantee you if you do this five times with colleagues you'll be able to actually do this pretty well with an older person. And it may take you longer at first it may take you half an hour but you don't want to go too long or otherwise again, it again become something else. So the next section is, is developing a drinking agreement and you know A reasonable goal for some people is not drinking at all. But another reasonable goal is to really cut down on your consumption. You need to be really non-evaluative about that. It's up to the person what they do. It's their responsibility to decide if they want to cut down or they want to stop drinking. And so what we're going to do today is think about, well, after everything we've said, um, do you think you should change any of your drinking behavior? Is there anything you want to do? It's interesting to me that when you get to this page, the number of people who say, yeah, I don't think I need to be drinking. It seems to me that I have a lot more risk than I want to have. And so I'm going to stop drinking. Or I'm going to drink only once a week. Or I'm going to drink just on special occasions. Many people do this. Because they haven't been educated about the risks and the benefits like we do here. Some people are going to say to you, no. I don't think so. I don't, there's nothing I want to change. And that's an OK response. Because that sets them up to be able to at least understand, based on everything that you've gone through, it may not be what you choose for, for them, because you can't choose for them. They have to choose but it gives them some ideas to start thinking about this in the context of their life. Your goal as an intervener is to get them to quit or to cut down, to get them below the recommended limits. That's the goal, but you may not reach that goal in the intervention. I would say that 90% of the cases people will agree to reducing their consumption or quitting. But there'll be some that won't. And so what you do here is um, you're developing an agreement to figure out the three questions. How many standard drinks are they going to drink a day? Or, and how frequently? So that's, it's really day and week and um, over what period of time. Some people will, you will be intervening with are only binge drinking. They're drinking twice a week, and they're drinking five or more drinks. Or they're drinking once a week, drinking five or more drinks. So then you have to customize this based on that, that they won't drink over two drinks on that drinking day. They'll switch to other beverages and whatnot. So you'll write this down then as in this agreement. Just write it out that starting today or starting tomorrow, I will drink no more than one drink on a drinking on, on the days that I drink, and um, I will uh, I'll be able to maintain this until I see you again. And then you can sign this. They may not be willing to sign this because uh, their son has said, "Don't sign anything without me being there." Uh, they can initial it. It's theirs anyway. So it's 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 kind of just using the behavioral technique that when you. When you negotiate with someone and you tell someone that you're going to do something, that you're going to actually do it, the, the likelihood is very high that you'll do it. Sharing a goal with someone else actually improves the likelihood that you'll change that behavior and, and meet that goal. So that's that's the concept behind that. Yeah?
3: Are there any suggestions for the choice between complete abstinence and moderation? Um, especially because there are, there's lots of literature saying that Attainable goals and meeting attainable goals leads to yes. eventual like, progression.
0: Um, in, in the motivational interviewing uh, spirit, I feel pretty agnostic about it. I, I think people can do whatever they choose to do. And so uh, you're absolutely right that attainable goals are really important so that you know, realistic goals can be very productive. But some people will say, you know, I really think I can just stop. It seems very reasonable to me. Again, you're dealing with a wide range of people, so you never know what people will say. But you know, um, I guess my perspective is whatever people will do is okay. You know, whatever they say they'll do is okay. The next piece is a very quick um, uh, uh, diary card. This allows people to keep track of their of their drinking. Um, you can provide them with individual cards if you want. Uh, it's amazing to me, in our studies, we found that over 50% of people actually use these to keep track of it. So if you've ever done uh, food diaries, uh, you, when you're monitoring how much you're putting in your mouth, you're going to change what you put in your mouth. Um, there, you know, there are uh, obviously a number of new uh, smartphone apps for this kind of stuff. Some people will be using them, some won't. But it's a very powerful way for people to keep track of what they're drinking. You can talk about that. You can you can teach them how to do this very quickly by saying, you know, today is Wednesday. Have you had anything to drink today? Don't be surprised if it's the morning and they've already drunk, because that's not uncommon. Uh, Well, what did you drink? I had a couple beers. You put two here, and um, you know. Now remember. Your goal, you can fill this out for the rest of the week and show them how to do that. And you you can keep track of it this way. And remember, your goal is to drink no more than one drink a day. And some days, you may not drink at all. Then um, the last bits are risky situations. Uh, Oops. Nope, wrong way, sorry. Ah, shoot. How did this happen? Wow. I really screwed up. Sorry about that. Uh, Okay. So this last piece is just um, developing a strategy for handling risky situations. Um, And this is to ask about situations or other cues that may trigger drinking. And, you know, the idea is to get a sense of You know, people have a lot of risky situations when they may drink more than they intend to. So can you think of any circumstances that may have you not meet your goals? Any times that that might happen? You elicit from them. Open-ended question. Here's some of the examples of what happens. What are the two most common things for you? What do you think are your riskiest situations? List those here. And then the last piece of this is to think about what are some of their strategies for dealing with their risky situations? So, if their risky situation is that they go over to their daughter's house on Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon to watch the game, and the brother, the son-in-law is there, and you drink one beer after the other, so what might you do differently? How that might that be? What would be different for you? What what could you do instead, and come up with solutions to that? Um, So, here are some ideas of what people can do, but there's many, many ways. And the goal is to get their ideas, not yours. It's their strategies to prevent this. And you list those. And you write down, um, for the first risky situation, and then the second situation, of ways of coping. Very quick. So now you should be at 20 minutes. And And what this does is that you're trained to do empathetic technique. So what you're trying to do is say, you know, this is really a good goal for you. That seems like a good strategy. I think you could really do that. So you're, you're listening, you're reflecting, and you're providing them with some feedback. The last is the visit summary. So remember your goal. And you've, you know, reiterate the goal. You can use this booklet whenever you want. It's your workbook. Every time you're tempted to drink above limits uh, that you set, Um, uh, and are able to resist, congratulate yourself because you're breaking an old habit. Whenever you feel uncomfortable, tell yourself the feeling will pass. Remember the 10-minute rule? That chocolate bar, if you can resist it for 10 minutes, it's like building muscle. That resistance actually gives you more resolve to resist. So, if you can resist for 10 minutes, the likelihood that you can resist longer is very great. So, it's a 10 minute behavioral strategy. At the end of each week, think about how many days you've been abstinent, where you've not drunk at all, or have been a light to moderate drink. You know, give yourself, congratulate yourself. That's great. It's really good for you. Don't give up. If you're having a problem day, just start another day. Start over the next day. Go back to your goal. Uh, you should always feel free to uh, call me or to get other assistance. You, again, you have to customize this to whatever your setting is and whatever you, can, you, you need to say. Um, it just gives you kind of the framework for um, you know, giving you a practical summary of, of what you've learned from them and their, uh, uh, their goal set and what they can do to, to really promote their, their well-being. And that's it. Pretty straightforward. Any questions? All right. So the last bits, I want to just spend a couple more minutes on slides, and then I want to ask you some questions about how you might be able to uh, to uh, address these things. We've talked about alcohol withdrawal, 28 drinks per week, if they're also using benzos and opioids, uh, you want to de- do additional things, and you may that may be beyond what your scope of practice will be, but it's something to pay attention to. Um, the follow-up sessions can be, you know, just a reiteration of what you've already covered. Um, you can do it any time. It can be at the next session that you're seeing them. Uh, if, it, if for lots of these interventions, it's only one session with very little follow-up, depending on the setting. Like our brief intervention work in the emergency department, we see them once, no follow-up. In primary care, we may see them, you know, multiple times, and we do follow-up. Um, you know, the purpose is to assess progress, to show concern, provide support, um, straightforward stuff. And, well, that's just a repeat. Uh, we don't need to cover that. That's easy. And that's easy. Here are a couple resources. Easy, there's lots of materials, so if you want more information, uh, there are training videos. You can actually see one of these interventions being conducted on video. At the SAMHSA.gov website, you just search for older or elderly, lots of materials on it. And at the NIAAA.gov website is the, the provider's guide and a variety of other resources. All free, downloadable, easy to access, you learn a lot more with either of those and then there's my content mm-hmm. sorry
2: He's <laughs>
0: um, so any questions and I want to ask you some questions about for the last 15 minutes about how you might implement these yeah
2: so are we allowed to use the health promotion workbook
0: yes okay. copy it modify it use it okay yeah. So my question... Sorry, go ahead. I just have one question. When you're asking them about the positive and negative
2: consequences, if they don't come up with negative consequences, or, sorry, they may come up with, but you know that there
0: are negative consequences... You can suggest them. You can provide feedback, yeah. If you know more about them because you've been working with them for a while... You may you know may know that they have uh, also mood disturbance, some depression. You may know that they've had other problems. You can absolutely bring those up. You know, that's absolutely appropriate. Yeah. Sort of related to the
3: question that yeah. had is that some of the positive consequences of removing emotional disturbance or those examples, those are coping mechanisms that yes. lead to problematic use mm-hmm. and even. Dependence yep. of use. So, is it appropriate to identify that although that is a positive effect of use, that it is also a negative effect?
0: Sure. Of use? Yeah, yeah. You could say it both ways. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, part of what you're trying to do is have them understand the context of their drinking, and all of the things going on with them. Yeah, that's good. Okay. for the last few minutes, I wanted to ask you, um, so to use this tomorrow, how would you think about implementing the Audit C screening questions in your practice? How might that work? What are some of the barriers for doing the Audit C in practice? Yeah?
2: It's not in our EMR.
0: It's not in the EMR. So what you might, how might you change that? You have to work with IT. Uh-huh. So EMRs now are, so you maybe have epic MRIA or something like that?
3: No, we have a centricity, but
0: so centricity, the cage is yeah. in there, but not. Yeah. So the cage is really not a crappy instrument, should not even be included. Okay. The audit C okay. is, should be replaced, it should be replacement, not a addition. And um, it should it should be part of it's it's well accepted by insurers. It's well accepted in the field. Um, uh, the Joint Commission is going to require probably use of the audit uh, in inpatient settings. So there's going to be you know there there's a lot of reasons to to include the audit, uh, and certainly the audit see the first three questions. Yeah. Other barriers or other ideas about how you might implement screening things that you see as, as not being able to do the identification. If the
2: patient has a cognition issue?
0: Cognitive issues is, is really a big one, and so um, you're just going to have to play that by ear, and you may get uh, 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 collateral information from others around that um, insofar that you're able to do that. Again, we're talking about relatively low-level consumption, so you want to try to minimize the, the uh, reactivity that people might have around being asked the questions. That's another thing that many people feel um, or experience in implementing screening is that, uh, well, how do you do this where you don't get a lot of reactivity? So you you do this in the context of a clinical interview. And if you're not in there already, what I would say is the first thing I would do is it should be embedded within other assessment structures, electronic health record or other assessment packages. It should just be part of it. We ask this of everyone is the idea. But if you can't do that, or if you don't have that as part of your clinical setting, and you're doing a home visit, for example, you might just have conversational things. The questions are easy to remember. And you might have a conversation that talks about all kinds of things going on with them. And this is just one more thing that you're going to be asking about. And you do it as a no big deal. Right? Um, so that's another way to get get some information from individuals and to not have it as a, well, how much do you drink? Because that, you know, you're going to get resistance and you're not going to get any good quality information. But having done many, many interviews, it's, it's really quite straightforward to just ask the broader questions. Other thoughts about screening. Yes. So what about having uh, confidential conversations and having, if you have a spouse or a significant other or even a caregiver around that uh, you want to have a private conversation with the individual, you have to kind of set it up. I mean, you have to try and do this very carefully uh, and absolutely you might get some reaction to that. Um, I have, you know, many experiences where, you know, in our intervention work, people, we really had to do clever things to, to even, inclu- including Walking outside, and you know, doing some assessment on the, on the sly, uh, doing a variety of things with the individual, having paper and pencil, sometimes, um, you know, many different ways to try and get that information, so that there was it wasn't a public thing. Uh, but there were a couple of instances have been that I remember uh, distinctly where the spouse from the other room yelled into the other room the correct response, even after trying to you know, limit that connection. So, it's something that you want to work on. It's hard. It's very tricky. Yeah, yeah. Other thoughts? Let's talk about the brief intervention. So, what are some of the strategies you might use for actually conducting the brief intervention? You know, how do you implement it right away? How do you get to a place where Here's an evidence-based practice that we know works, that we can improve health, and we ought to be using. What are the barriers to using it? And what I'd like to think about is if we had a really great new treatment that worked, and worked as well as these, for breast cancer, and I told you, oh, you can't have it. Because we don't deliver that. We don't know how to put it into practice. We don't know how to get it into our regular work. What would you say? That's outrageous. This is not unlike that. These interventions work, they're very useful, and they can really improve health. So we ought to implement them. They take 20 minutes. And it can have a big impact on people's lives. And so what are the barriers to getting to that place? How do we do it? Yeah.
3: I would have to say again, it goes back to access to care. Yeah. You want to talk about breast cancer and the latest treatment coming out, and it goes on ABC News that there's this magnificent drug showing great new clinical trials, and you live in... Or yep, and the only place that's holding a clinical trial is I'll say Dartmouth or Boston, and transportation's an issue. You're older, mm-hmm. you don't meet the criteria to get on the clinical trial. You can't get that drug. Right now with the alcohol, thing, the I don't believe that there's actually a center at Dartmouth receptive to working with. These
0: clients or but but what I'm saying, excuse accessible. me, yeah. But what I'm okay, saying right. is that I this this intervention, you can deliver.
3: Right now, I've delivered the intervention. The person agrees they want help. They want to, let's say, eliminate their drinking. Well, yes. Well, I can be here. and I can be a support. But
0: and some people. one w- of my scope
3: of practice.
0: Right, but some. What my, my point is that some people will be able to do that on their own, and will do it. And so, because we know that of all the people with serious alcohol and drug problems in the United States, all the people in the United States with serious alcohol and drug problems, what proportion of those people ever get formal treatment? Any guesses? What proportion of the United States population with serious alcohol and drug problems who we would all argue should go to treatment, what proportion get to treatment? 40%. How much? 40% is way too high. 10% is a little low, 15%. So what happens to the 85% that don't get treatment? What happens to the people? They need treatment, they don't get it. So your case of saying that people are in rural cases, rural settings, they can't get it. What happens to those people? They have comorbidities, they use a lot of health care resources, they're revolving door patients. Some of them are. Yes. What else? They go to prison. They go to jail. That's a really important issue. What else? They go to AA, they get help on their own, they go, they go to self mutual aid groups. What else? They get homeless and they die. Right? What else? The biggest group you're missing. The big, they go to treatment. Yeah, some people go to treatment. But that's, that's included in the 15%. They quit on their own. On their own. <laughs> Who said that? You get the star for today. <laughs> they quit on their own. It's, it's the unknown piece to the big puzzle. I'm a strong advocate of treatment and having treatment in communities because treatment works for people. It saves lives. Don't get me wrong. I'm a firm believer in treatment. But I'm also a realist in trying to figure out, well, how do people change behaviors? And what makes a difference in people's lives? How do we motivate people and help them think about what their drinking is like and how it is impacting their lives? And that, I think, you all can do. You can't solve all the problems. But you might be able to push people to start thinking about it that then I'll, that motivates them to start thinking about what they might do about it. Yeah? Okay, but you're talking about okay, treatment works. Somebody can me on their own, and we're not talking, again, we're talking at the end of the, the triangle. Yeah. I get that, but that's a small portion of the overall population that you will see. Because it's about 5% for men, 4% for men, and 1% for women in older adults. It's a small portion. The much larger portion are the at-risk and problem drinkers who could really benefit from a brief intervention. You can't do it all. And I'm not denying both of your cases, that there are are people with serious problems that we don't have great treatments for that are accessible in our communities. I totally get that, I buy that. But I'm saying that the alternative is you've got some tools at your disposal that you now have that you can make a difference in that trajectory. And if you think about that late onset population, The older women who have recent losses, who start drinking in later life, who could really benefit from a targeted brief intervention that might change the whole course of their life because they won't develop huge problems, that could be very powerful. So that's what I'm saying and that we ought to be thinking about, you know, learning how to do these interventions, getting some skill at it because it really is fairly straightforward to do this. Using what you learned today and putting it into practice because I really think that this could really make a big difference in your clients. And that's what you're there for. You know, you can say, and this is what I say, I have colleagues, you know, we have a big department of psychiatry. I have colleagues who tell me, we don't see any alcohol problems in our practice. Now, I talk to the head, you can't repeat this, this is a big group, but I talked to the head of the anxiety disorders clinic. Oh, no, we don't have any any problem drinkers in our practice. What the hell are you talking about? Of course you do. You don't detect them. You don't detect them. So the screening piece is important. All of your clients, the people you will see tomorrow in practice, have got these problems, and you're just not detecting it. Because the numbers are very specific. And so you need to be careful, compassionate, empathetic, and recognize that you have to be really understanding that these are things that can make a difference in people's lives. That if you can detect people that might benefit from these motivational enhancement interventions, you can change the course of what happens to them and the likelihood of them staying in their homes, which is part of the. The goals that we all have. Yeah.
2: Before, I said I've been doing a lot of intakes, and there's a number of people that are in that group that have said, like, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to, I didn't know what would affect me, and I've actually stopped them and said, because I want them to come, they're coming in for an evaluation, so like, should I stop? If I stop my, even my Ben's, I, maybe I should stop. I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> just come in for the
0: evaluation. We'll do everything, we'll look at everything, and then Perfect. we'll talk about it. Mm-hmm. Perfect. It's interesting to me how many people are just unaware and uneducated. Unaware, uneducated, and that's what this brief intervention can do for people and really, really make a difference. So I think it's time to stop, and I want to thank you all for being here today and for your great interaction and attention. I hope it was helpful to you. My contact information is here. Don't hesitate to send me a note if you want more information or if I can help you in any way. I hope this will be something that you can use. I'm very excited to be here. I actually have been uh, tangentially involved in the REAP program since the beginning and 20 years ago. We had lots of interactions over the years. I'm very excited to, to see this program evolve. It's a real model for the, for the country. And the rest of you in practice that are not in the REAP program, I think this is really kind of cutting edge stuff that could really make a difference. So I hope you'll use it. Last question, and we'll, we'll adjourn. Uh, we can, if you, uh, it's the, help me with the acronym.
2: Okay, REAP is a, it's a New Hampshire program, and it's um, referral, education, and prevention.
0: Assistance and prevention, right. I couldn't get this to be... It's a great outreach program in New Hampshire, and, it, and it's a really great model program. But you know, this can be done in lots of settings, so I hope it's helpful. And again, thank you again for being here today. And uh, go off and do great work.